0: Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to have you turn to two passages of Scripture and to keep them open in front of you throughout our time in the Word today because we will reference them. Exodus chapter 12 is the first passage. And then Isaiah chapter 2, if you will. Isaiah chapter 2. So open to Exodus 12 and then turn to Isaiah 2 and place your finger or your Bible marker. Perhaps you have some Bible markers in your Bible. Or if you're using a tablet or mobile device of some sort, you can use your bookmark feature. Exodus chapter 12. And then Isaiah chapter 2 as we continue in our series, Eucharist. And we're looking this morning in particular um, at the Eucharist again as a sacred meal. But now we are going to look at the Exodus Passover and an incredible vision that Isaiah had. We looked into Genesis last week, and how right from the very beginning, the Lord establishes His relationship with humankind, even at creation, around this concept of a meal, of eating and drinking together, and sharing communion and fellowship. And so we're looking at the Exodus Passover and this great vision of Isaiah as well this morning and the scriptures are also on the screen for us and I'm hoping that they are legible to us uh to be able to read together this morning. Um Sue if you can bring those up. Are we already having trouble? Oh there we go. Okay. Lift your voices with me, will you? Nice and loud. You have passages open and please do keep them open. But lift your voices and let's read the word Together, let's fill this house with the Scriptures today. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt... Are you here? Are you here this morning? How many are here? Okay, I know. We've gone so long with not being able to speak audibly, haven't we? Now, now we've got to kind of remind ourselves that we can do that. Lift your voices. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each family must choose a lamb, a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, Let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made with yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. No sushi here today. Notice that. Although you need fish to have sushi, so I don't know whether this would really qualify. Let's continue. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. Do not leave any of it until the next morning ever is not eaten before morning, these are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed. wear your sandals. Carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will Execute judgment against the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is a day to remember. Each year, from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. And now our Isaiah passage. Lift your voices, if you will. This is a vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. There He will teach us His ways, and we will walk in His paths. For the Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war, hallelujah, hallelujah, and keep Isaiah open in front of you as well because we're going to be looking at further portions in this same chapter. So let's dig a little further here on this whole sacred meal idea that we have in front of us. And these two Older Testament presentations of that sacred meal. First, at the center of the Jewish story of salvation is this event of Exodus and Passover. The children of Israel who had wandered into Egypt during the time of the patriarch Joseph became after many centuries so numerous that the Pharaoh felt threatened by them. And he decided he couldn't trust them any longer. He didn't want to take the chance that they could oust him from his position. So he turned them all into slaves of the Egyptians, compelled to build fortified cities and monuments for the Pharaoh. The church father Origin provided a symbolic reading for us of this narrative, this story, according to which the Israelites stand for all of the spiritual and physical powers that God has given to His people. And the Pharaoh and his underlings represent sin and the worship of false gods. Sin, the story is telling us, has enslaved the human race, pressing what is best in us into its service like Pharaoh did with the Israelites making them slaves, using mind, will, imagination, courage, and creativity in a perverted way. And this perversion in turn has set us at odds with one another. Prompting the war of all against all. And boy, aren't we seeing that even in these days as we watch and pray at what is taking place between Russia and the Ukraine. And it's from this state of false worship and dissolution that God wishes to free the Israelites. And so what does God do? God does battle with the Pharaoh and his minions. The plagues. And we, most of us I think in the room are are somewhat acquainted with the story, if not very familiar. The plagues God sends upon them. And, And these plagues should not be interpreted as just random, arbitrary punishments, but as the means by which God enters into the spiritual struggle on our behalf. The final plague, according to the Exodus narrative, is the killing of the firstborn throughout Egypt, as we read together. To protect the children of Israel from this disaster, God instructs them to coat the doorposts of their homes with the blood of a slaughtered lamb so that when the angel of death comes he will see the blood and pass over the houses of the Israelites hence this feast of pesach or pascha as it's often called the passover one of the most sacred events on the hebrew calendar It's called Passover both because the Lord passed over the homes of the Hebrews, sparing them from death that came to the firstborn in Egypt, and it's called Passover because the Hebrews passed over the Red Sea as if it were dry land. As we see later on in the story of the Exodus. Passover celebrates God's steadfast love And compassion and devotion to his people and their freedom in him. And and just a note of interest as well it is also known that there there were others, there were other nations that had somehow found their way there into Egypt. There were even some Egyptians who took refuge in the homes of the Israelites. And they too were spared, having been in the homes that were marked with the sign of the blood. Interestingly enough, we see again God's heart of compassion and benevolence for all people who seek to take refuge in Him. And this is what took place. We're seeing a sign of that even today in the headlines, aren't we, as we know that not all of Russian residents are for this war that Putin is carrying out against Ukraine. Many are opposing it. So God gives grace, the grace and the compassion that we see even in the Older Testament despite what perhaps some have tried to sell us by way of the Old Testament not being a testament of grace and compassion. Grace and compassion are very much a theme that run throughout the entire Older Testament. Now, we'll return to this sacrificed lamb and its blood, but first, before we drill down into that whole picture a little further, I want to invite our focus on the meal itself that accompanies Passover. In the Exodus text that we have read together, we hear that God, after announcing what He's going to do to the firstborn in the land of Egypt, told Moses to instruct the entire nation of Israel To celebrate a memorial meal. Each household was to procure a young, unblemished lamb and to slaughter it in the evening twilight. Then they were to eat its roasted flesh along with bitter herbs, reminding them of the bitterness of their slavery. And they were to have unleavened bread. And this, incidentally, then became a practice that the Lord instituted at the beginning of Passover. In releasing the children of Israel from slavery, the first thing that the Lord instructed was seven days of eating unleavened bread. Now, why unleavened bread? Partly perhaps for practical reasons because they were on the run. You know the Lord gives them the instructions which we read together. Have your sandals on and have your walking stick ready. In other words, be ready to go. Eat this meal with urgency and be ready to go. So perhaps the instruction on unleavened bread is also for practical reasons because they were on the run and uh, they were being required to eat in haste, unable to wait for the bread to rise as they would normally have been accustomed to. But I think there's even more to this than that. The skill of ancient Egypt's bakers and the, 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 particularly the skill they had with yeast had cultivated a particular taste among the people of Israel. The Lord's directive was not to call them to a life of of merely haste and blandness, but it was to begin to move them away. What God is doing here, even in this simple instruction... Is he is beginning to move them away from what they were accustomed to. What they had grown accustomed to in the culture that they had become ensconced in as slaves in Egypt. And God was seeking to begin to move them away from that. Move them away from their former environment of Egyptian culture so they would become sensitized to where he was leading them. God wants to remake their taste buds so they don't accommodate what is less than worthy of His purpose and promise for them in the Exodus. Isn't that a beautiful picture? As God seeks to begin to Exodus them it begins even before they step foot outside the land. So this sacred Passover meal involving the whole nation must become, as God commands, this is a day to remember. Each year, from generation to generation, as we read together, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all so God declares a brand new year for His people. A year of new beginnings. The English word sin that we use in our language day to day, you may know this, is derived from the German word Sunde which has the sense of dividing. The closest English relative to this German word, Sünde, would be Sunder. How many have heard that word? Sunder. That's where the word Sunder comes from. Everything in the cosmos exists in relation to the Creator God before they exist in relation to us or anything else. And sin divides and scatters us. It puts all of this to sunder, if you will. Dividing. And all of creation, as we saw, is involved in this severing. And it's a severing of our relationship with the Creator God through whom we find our identity and our unity. Sin severs us from our very source of that in Him. So as God led the Israelites out of slavery, which is to say, out of the bondage of sin, God establishes this meal a meal that identified them as his and that united the whole people, gathering them in their household around a common table and around common food. And he declared that this act of identity and common unity must be commemorated down through the ages as the defining practice of the Israelite nation. This meal would be the defining practice of who His people would be. The Passover meal, in a word, was a recovery, however imperfect, it was a recovery of the the, the natural intimacy and easy unity and fellowship that we saw in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2. This meal was a recovery of that. However imperfect, God hosting a banquet at which His human creatures share life-giving relationship with Him and with each other. Much like we saw in Babette's feast a couple of weeks ago much like we saw take place there. Though this theme is somewhat subdued in the Exodus story, it's not loud and in your face. It's a subdued theme. The united Israel was intended by God to be a catalyst for the unification of the entire world. We must recall that the redemptive rescue operation is directed to the descendants of Adam and Eve. Which is to say, to the whole human race. Right down to you and me in this room today. Right down to our cities and neighborhoods. The whole human race. God chose Israel neither because of their special merits nor for their peculiar advantage, but rather as a vehicle. Everybody say vehicle. They were to be His vehicle to carry His salvation to the nations. All the ethnos, people groups of the world. And again, as I told you a moment ago, We even begin to see hints of this in the fact that there were others besides Israelites that found refuge in the Israelite homes and thereby also participated in the exodus of those who left Egypt. A sign already of his desire for all the people groups of the world. these slave families gathering in hope and fellowship around a meal of roasted lamb and bitter salad greens and unleavened bread were in the biblical reading, they were the seeds from which the family of God will grow. Now, the second Older Testament instance of meal symbolism that we have already cracked open this morning is this vision that we see found in our Isaiah text. The prophet Isaiah is probably one of the greatest poets in the scriptural tradition. And one of his master images on display Throughout his writings. You study Isaiah and you'll find this. One of his master images on display throughout his writings is the holy mountain. The holy mountain. In our Isaiah text today, we find this splendid vision. We read together, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house says Isaiah, will be the highest of all. It will be the most important place on earth. It will be raised above other hills. And people from all over the world will stream there to worship. People from many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God. For there He will teach us His ways and we will walk in His paths." The mountain of the Lord's house is none other than Zion where the temple, the place of right worship, is situated. So what is Isaiah seeing here? Well, Isaiah dreams here of the coming together of all the scattered tribes of Israel indeed, of the whole world around the worship of the one true God. The division that commenced, the sunder, as we talked about a moment ago, the division that began with the idolatry that took place in the Garden of Eden. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, verse 5. All of that is healed through a grateful acknowledgement of God's primacy. And the distinctive mark of this rightly ordered worship is peace. Everybody say peace. Peace. Look what Isaiah says. We've read it together. I'll read it again. For the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion... His word will go out from Jerusalem. The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares. The the, the plowshare was a tool that was made to, to furrow the soil as the farmers would use. And they will hammer those swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. This was signs of peace that Isaiah was speaking of here. What a powerful prophetic word that that touches on even what we are seeing in our days today. So having found friendship with God, Isaiah implies here human beings will rediscover friendship and kinship with one another. And they will not feel the need to train for war any longer. The cosmic implication of this reconciliation is plain in the 11th chapter of Isaiah, which we didn't read together, but I invite you to turn there, will you? Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, and there, there are a boatload of things that we could look at here today, and I'm trying to do this in a very uh, cursory way where we kind of look at an overview of it to get an idea. But look at this in Isaiah chapter 11. The prophet dreams of the age of Messiah. In that day, verse 6, in that day, The wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. We have it on the screen. Let's read it together. Lift your voice with me, will you? In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And the little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of the cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. What a profound and curious picture as Isaiah sees the day and the age of Messiah. We saw that the original sin in Genesis entailed a falling apart of the whole of God's creation. A setting at enmity, sunder, dividing humanity and nature. Now, here on God's holy mountain of the Lord, the place of right worship all is reconciled and reintegrated. And moreover, there's a third and culminating feature of God's holy mountain that Isaiah specially emphasizes. He says, The mountain is the place of right worship and cosmic peace, as we see in these scriptures that we already read together, where, you know, seeing these curious things like. Lions laying down with lambs and, and bears and, and, and calves uh, together and there's no harm and a child will we'll lead them. What's, God, what's, what's Isaiah saying there? Well, he's talking about how now the dominion and the rule and reign of God will not be, as we know, the egotistical rule of many of our own human governments and nations. One that is driven by domination and hunger and lust for power and control and seeking to dominate and to oppress humankind into the wishes of whatever the egotistical agenda is. As we're seeing even now with Putin and in, in Russia over the Ukraine. Isaiah says that with the reign of God, with the coming of God's kingdom, with the age of Messiah, it's not going to be one of domination, but the dominion of the Lord is going to have a childlike nature to it there's going to be a gentleness about it. A child is a very non-threatening picture. The rule of the Lord is not going to be a rule of threat and manipulation and coercion and domination. No. It's going to be a gentle rule. We see it even in Jesus. His meekness. And we know that meekness is not weakness, though our culture has so ingrained into us otherwise. And it isn't, isn't it interesting that the Messiah calls us as the people of God to be childlike, and in that childlikeness we enter into the kingdom. It's the same thing that Isaiah's it's touching on here in His words. And so, there's going to be uh, right worship on the mountain and it's going to be a place of cosmic peace, but it's also going to be the locale of a magnificent meal. Again, we get this picture of meal put in front of us. A meal. In the 25th chapter, turn there if you will, Isaiah 25... Isaiah 25 now and verse 6. Isaiah 25 and verse 6. We have it here for us too. Lift your voices and read it with me again, will you? In Jerusalem, on this mountain, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well aged wine and choice meat. And now we should pray and all to lunch. (laughs) So we're getting hungry. We see this picture again of a meal. In Isaiah's vision, the gathered community is fed by a gracious God with the finest foods. God spares no expense. We serve a very extravagant God. I don't know if you know that or not. But we serve a very extravagant God. The finest of foods He will set before us. Calling to mind the situation in the Garden of Eden before the eating and drinking was interrupted by a selfish, self-serving grasping at godliness. So the prophet envisions all the peoples of the world living in peaceful nonviolence, and informed by right worship, able to share life with God and with one another, receiving and giving grace. And we've seen that this holy mountain is Zion, Jerusalem, the place of the temple. And you'll recall, if you will with me, if you look back in the to the story of our, our first time together around this theme in Babette's Feast. You remember the members of the dean's community. They sang. And they sang often. And what did they sing about? They sang of the heavenly Jerusalem for which they longed. What they were singing about is precisely what Isaiah is dreaming about. In a new heaven and new earth, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, having come down from God out of heaven according to Revelation 21. Notice that. We've got a new heaven and a new Jerusalem coming down. There's, there's nothing about you know, all of us evacuating and going up. It's about the new Jerusalem And the new heavens coming down. And John in Revelation says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. Having come down from God out of heaven, and we will feast on God's festive meal shared with His holy people. We see it again in Revelation 21. There is a feast that has been prepared. And when it dawns, all in Christ will be there. All in Christ will be there. And we won't quite remember what we might have had against someone else. Any resentment that we have held on to will finally be gone. We'll be so glad to see one another. Memory will fade like the pains in our bones as we stand with joy and we see the face of Christ. And in the light of His face, in the reality of His presence. Only the present will have any reality. All things will become present in Him. And a sound is heard, first in the distance. But we can't quite figure out where in the distance, but it draws nearer. And everyone hears in their own language the song of the Lamb. Christ, our Passover. And we begin to sing together. And since every moment is present, there is no sense of how long we will have been singing or how long we will sing. I love that. We, we won't be sitting in this gathering together checking our watches. Oh man, when is He going to get it over with here? We're not going to be doing any of that because all things will be present in Him. There will be no sense of how long we've been singing or, or how long we will sing. But in the song, everything comes to rights. The creation beneath our feet begins to awaken, and the song is taken up by trees and rocks and rivers and sky, and all creation sings Glory to the Lamb. Glory to the Lamb that was slain. Glory to the Christ, our Passover. More than a dream. More than a vision. More than a religious ritual. More than a symbol. This is the reality of the sacred meal. The Eucharist that we share. Beloved, each time we share it together, we are foretasting His kingdom. Come and coming. Amen.